Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the Good Good Judgment Judgment Podcast. Podcast. Hello, folks, and welcome to another edition of the Good Judgment Podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Wade Padgett. And I'm Tane Kell. Today's topic concerns something that comes up a bit more frequently and with some regularity these days, and that is requests for recording proceedings in your courtroom. That's right. We're going to talk about the requirements of Uniform Superior Court Rule 22 and the larger issue of media generally, I guess, in our relationship with the media as judges. That's right. So let's dive in, Wade. First, let's talk about the Uniform Superior Court rule that governs the use of electronic media in the courtroom. Well, Tane, that's Rule 22. And, (laughs) um, you know, we kind of recently redid that a few years ago. And it only really, our rules really only were concerned with recording by what you might call traditional media outlets. But then they changed Rule 22. So, Tane, is that still true? Is it still only address recording by quote-unquote media? No, 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 Wade. We don't even have to make that distinction anymore because way back in 2018 or 19... You mean B.C.? You know, before COVID? That's right, Wade. Back in the dark ages. (laughs) So back, back at that time, the Rules Committee of the Council of Superior Court Judges an organization that is near and dear to both of our hearts, began working with the Supreme Court to create a modern rule regarding the use of all types of electronic equipment in the courtroom. Shout out to Steve Schuster. Go, Stevie. So you mean like computers and and stuff like that? Exactly. Computers, cell phones, cameras, recording devices of all types, and also dealing with concepts of things like tweeting and live streaming from the courtroom. You know, that's pretty interesting because it, as I, re- I don't remember tweet with a big T being anywhere in Rule 22. Yeah. Uh, the predecessor of, uh, of, of Rule 22, the old Rule 22, was really geared, as we said a minute ago, towards the traditional and, quite frankly, now outdated concepts of quote-unquote media in the courtroom. Things like TV cameras and still cameras and tape recorders. For those of you who don't know what we're talking about, um, ask your mom or dad. They can tell you something about that we used to call the nightly the nightly news. They can tell you what an eight track tape player was <laughs> and then how how cool cassettes were. I had an eight track player in my 1976 Camaro. It was awesome. I had a AM eight track in my 74 Monte Carlo. Oh man, that's awesome. Wish I still had that car. Um, but anyway, with the invention of many of the modern innovation, innovations associated with the widespread use of and reliance upon computers and cell phones and the internet came new challenges for administering the use of those devices in courtrooms. For example, the old rule, it used to say that it required the court to make an initial determination whether the entity requesting access for recording in a courtroom was a member of the media or not. But things like bloggers and podcasters. Weirdos and outcasts. Yeah, right. So they just didn't fit into neatly into any of those categories at all that we had come to know as media. So the question arose as to whether it even matters in this modern era, whether someone wants to use an electronic device, whether or not they qualify as media or not. 
Yeah, the, the truth is, too, Wade, that we judges were sort of all over the map. As no. how to, I know, shocking in, in all of the different judicial circuits uh, that things were different. But but truly, I mean, even within my own circuit, uh, the way we interpreted some of these things was vastly different. And so um, we had to figure out how to administrate such things in the modern era. So, like, some judges were saying that no one could use a cell phone to check messages in the courtroom, while others were allowing it as long as the phone was on silent mode, and others were not allowing anyone to bring a computer to the courtroom, even if they were a party in the case or one of the lawyers, um, or that they could only do that during trial, but not in other occasions, and others allowed you to bring your own devices, but not to access the internet in the courtroom. No internet, no phone, I mean... What in the world are y'all doing over there in the in the Mad Max era of Cobb County? How would you survive? I'm hyperventilating at the very thought. Though truthfully, seriously, Tane, it, it was we had to get some uniformity across the board, and and we needed to do it in a way that was not um, unmindful that we have court reporters and other things, but we needed some some rules. True. True. So enter the Rules Committee and the Supreme Court. And a shout out to our friends, Judge Stephen Schuster and Justice Nels Peterson, among others, who really got this ball rolling and helped shape this rule into something that we could use in the modern era that makes sense and creates uniformity. You know, whenever you try to tackle something as monumental as this, it requires you to think outside the box. So they started by saying, basically, let's scrap the old rule that only deals with recording devices in court and the traditional media concepts. So let's begin with a clean slate. Yeah. The new rule is clearly centered on the concept of, quote, open courtrooms. I mean, something that, that, we're, uh, that we're all about. So in the preamble or what they call the overview section of the rule, it, it states as follows. And we don't normally read rules verbatim, but I think it's important for you to understand here. Tane, reading law is usually not awesome. Yeah. I know. Reading law during a podcast is not awesome. But I'm going to do it anyway. Open courtrooms are an indispensable element of an effective and respected judicial system. It is the policy of Georgia's courts to promote access to and understanding of court proceedings, not only by the participants in them, but also by the general public and by news media who will report on the proceedings to the public. This must be done, however, while protecting the legal rights of the participants in the proceedings and ensuring appropriate security and decorum. Now, that's that's true, and, 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 and I think we have all acknowledged this open court courtroom requirement, but that open courtroom requirement has been Georgia law for a minute, as the kids say. For example, in R.W. Uh, Page versus Lumpkin, which is from 1982. That's before I even graduated law school. Undergrad, before I under, graduated undergrad. Before I graduated high school. Oh. Yeah, that the out. Georgia Supreme Court emphasized that Georgia law governing open courtrooms was and is the most expansive it, it was Georgia's law on that subject was even more expansive than federal law on that subject. Is that why when we talk about state cases in Georgia courts and the media, they have photos and videos and they don't have those like sketchy little drawings of the courtroom that are made by first graders? Yeah, you know, one of the most, we talk about things that aren't flattering in life. And I had somebody who was going to um, drawing school. I don't know what you call it. Court artist school, courtroom, yeah. Yeah. whatever. Courtroom school. artist school. And and to thank me for letting them draw in my, in my courtroom, they gave me a portrait. Yeah. Anyway. Is it hanging in the courthouse, Wade? It's hanging. 
it's just it's just like wow, I don't look like that. They go, oh, it looks great. I'm like, oh my god, I look terrible. Anyway, I I also know. Let me just add here, getting back to the topic. I also know that the Supreme Court has said that not only the First Amendment rights of the media may be implicated in the issue of open courtrooms, but also the Sixth Amendment rights of criminal defendants may also be involved. That's right, because so basically the new look Rule Twenty Two. It takes into account other factors to decide who can use devices in the courtroom and then how those devices can be used. So let's look at the rule itself. Sure. Uh, One of the first things to note is that the rule governs basically two categories of devices. First, devices capable of recording sound and images. Right. That would going to include your traditional video and still cameras, but it would also encompass things like cell phones, iPads, tablets, etc., probably even computers, because all of those devices have either software or the hardware capabilities to record images. Yeah, absolutely. And then the second category of devices covered by the rule um, is devices that are not used to record. So again, these would be things like cell phones when not being used to record, computers, and things like that. Um, when they're not being used to record proceedings. So let's start with the non-recording device category, things like your computer and cell phone. So the general rule is that these devices can be used in the courtroom without a court order by court personnel, lawyers and their employees, and self-represented litigants. And, and let me just take an aside here, Wade. So, so think about it this way. The rule is essentially attempting to apply or or meant to apply to the proceedings that are immediately ongoing in front of the judge. But let's just think about another thing that's really important here too, and that is you have to be able to instruct your bailiffs on what your courtroom rule is going to be, not just with respect to the participants in the proceedings, because that's easy to define from the rule, but also what about the people in the audience? You know, can somebody be sitting in the audience with a laptop open working on something while they're waiting on their case to come up? Or can they be sitting there on their phone scrolling through their Facebook messages and those sorts of things? So again, the rule I don't think is in intended to get that far into your business, so to speak, but it certainly gives a general rule, which is generally we're okay with these kinds of devices being used. So that brings us to another group of people in the courtroom that, and and you know we're, I'm about to kick it off, it's jurors. <laughs> well, we're, 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 we're in, there's a place down here that says insert rant here. So, so let me just say, There is a specific part of the rule that says jurors' devices are required to be powered off at all times while they're in the courtroom and during deliberations. So that's what you do too, right, Wade? Wrong. So let me ask you something, and and, and I mean this with all sincerity. I don't – to be clear, let me start with by saying I I basically ask the jurors to leave their phones elsewhere during their jury service because if they don't, we're going to take them. You don't want us to have them, and we don't want them – but you can't have it with you while you're serving as a juror. Now, I've had judges look at me and say, well, what if they had an emergency? Well, what if they do? Are you going to let them go? Are they going to answer the phone? during? Hang on, judge. I, I got a call here from the daycare. Hang on, hang on. Hello? I mean, is that what we're going to do they're, in the trial? They're required to be powered off while they're in the courtroom but but so here is waiting i've waiting i've debated this many many times we have and, and so we agree to disagree right what? we do and 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 we've had i've had somebody who had jury service that was a friend who said that during the jury deliberation a juror had his phone out and he was playing i don't know 
some game. Space Invaders. Y- yeah. How Gosh, old are you? I wish that was on, I wish that was on the phone. 2048 or something. He was Love playing some little ball bus game. Breeze. Something, you know, Candy Crush. And oh. would only, and when they sort of, sort of made him engage, he said, he sort of looked up from his phone and said, again, not guilty. And would go back to his game. And then they would engage so, him, and he so was that's like, the reason, not guilty. That's the reason we take them away from our jurors only during the time that they're in deliberation, and they are required to be powered off while they're in the courtroom, and that's what the rule says. But anyway, Wade and I could debate this all day, and we have on multiple occasions. We so. have. So, so basically, let's talk, you've talked about parties and spectators. And, um, and jurors. And jurors now. Next. The rule goes on to say that witnesses must have their devices powered off while they're in the courtroom unless they are allowed to use them while on the stand by the court. Now, understand, we're not just talking about cell phones here. We're also talking about somebody, a witness walks up to the to the uh, witness stand with a laptop. I mean, you may have... Uh, you may have uh, a, a, an expert witness who comes up there with their laptop. Sure. So what the... What the um, what the rule says is that they can come up to the witness stand, they're to have the device powered off, and then they're to ask the court whether or not they can use the device. So, you know, if they're an expert and they need their, their computer out to go over some spreadsheets or something, you might give them uh, the permission to do that. It also says, the rule also says, witnesses are not allowed to record the proceedings, and we'll get to that when we're talking about recording devices. So we talked for a little bit about parties and spectators. These folks are only allowed to use devices if a proper application is made with the court as required under this rule, that's a fancy way of saying prior to this thing kicking off, prior to this event happening, you have to get specific permission. Yeah, and, and, and I'll, I'll just emphasize, though, the part of that's in the rule about court people who are in the courtroom only seems to directly address the issue of recording. Mm-hmm. It doesn't seem to address whether they can actually, like I said, look on a cell phone while they're in the courtroom or look on a laptop while but they're sitting. But how in the world do you differentiate? I think that's and, really the problem. And right? I think, and I think that's why each judge in that circumstance is going to have to set down what their rule is as far as the use of devices in their courtroom and and instruct your court personnel appropriately. And quite frankly, you may want to put a sign up that says, "Unless you're a party in the case." This is the rule that applies to you. Folks, we need to pause now for an important announcement. Folks, this is Wade and Tane, and you're listening to the Good Judgment Podcast on the World Wide Web. As always, you can find our outlines for these podcasts, as well as supplemental materials on our website at goodjudgepod.com. We'd love to have your feedback about the podcast at our email at goodjudgepod at gmail.com. And we're always looking for suggested podcast topics. Feel free to submit your suggestions to us at goodjudgepod at gmail.com. Operators are standing by. And remember, if you like what you're hearing, don't forget to like us and follow us on your favorite podcasting platform. And tell all your friends. Thanks. And now back to our studio audience. So let's talk for a minute about that recording in the courtroom. The people, when we, we get there and you're actually allowed to record. Yeah, our other, de- our other category of device use. This is huge change from the old Rule 22. Absolutely. Because the old rule basically said no one except media, and whatever that meant, could do any recording. But under the current version, the attorneys and self, self-represented parties can now record the pr- proceedings without the permission of the court 
by announcing to the court and the parties their intention to record. Now, do you as a judge, Tane, have any, I mean, if they say, I'm going to do it, you just have to say, thanks for playing, okay? Well, you have some discrepancy. I mean, uh, it's permitted as long as it's announced in advance. But, of course, the court always retains um, some ability to make some uh, prohibitions uh, in special circumstances. But it needs to require a pretty good reason. And, and let me just tell you, your rule of thumb in making a rule like that is always going to be to put into place the least prohibitive um, restriction possible under the circumstances. So, for example, um, you may allow them to record, and there's some there's some definitions in the statute, but you may allow them to record things that happen only when the judge is on the bench. That's one of the ones that's, a, that's addressed in the rules. Uh, so that they cannot record conversations that might be happening between a, an attorney and client. Um, they can't record video record uh, proceedings that would show the jurors or a, a, a juvenile uh, witness's uh, face or, or, you know, so appropriate. That was really hard during COVID when we were trying to lie stream jury selection yes jeez yeah really really tough so anyway there there are a lot of things that maybe uh you need to think about before you just make a snap judgment and say well no you can't record the proceedings at all even though because the rule says the general rule is that parties self-represented parties and attorneys can record the proceedings now what does that do tang to the the livelihood of court reporters well there's a provision that says that the recording that anybody makes in the courtroom is not the official recording. So unless there's a discrepancy that comes up and somebody wants to introduce that and say, hey, the official transcript is wrong here and here's what I recorded and they can properly establish that in a post-proceeding hearing and lay the proper foundation and have it admitted, I guess, for purposes of either a motion for new trial or for sending it up on appeal, their recording is essentially for their own use. It's for their own purposes and and you can understand that i mean yeah. sometimes being able to have what the judge said the order is supposed to say recorded on your uh, on your cell phone so that you don't miss anything rather than trying to write everything down could be helpful so, absolutely yeah so witnesses just can't record right that's right that's the rule they're just out that's right okay so so now well let me let me just let's get to the meat of the rule so okay. how can spectators media or otherwise whoever they are because it just it just refers to them as other people in the courtroom essentially how can they record the proceedings whether they're media or an interested citizen or a family member or an activist group or whoever they might be well, that's a great question because i think it's important to look back to the case that sort of predates this rule to get some perspective on it and that's the case involving our friend Judge Ott, the McLaurin versus Ott, which is at 327 Georgia Appeals 488. In that case, a law student wanted to record certain criminal proceedings. He applied for permission from the court, and that was denied, and then he sued. In that case, the Court of Appeals said that the trial court gave a thorough analysis of the rule, but while thoughtful, it overlooks, I guess, one, the open record sort of uh, open courtroom or open sorry open courtroom sort of um demeanor that that our courts should have and two although the decision as to whether to allow electronic and photographic coverage of a trial is usually within the discretion of the trial court the trial court denies it if the trial court denies it there must be a factual basis in the record that supports that denial so in light of the policy we hereby vacate the trial court's determination etc 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 
basically a camera would generally increase the openness of a judicial proceeding and there's nothing in this record to indicate that Mr. McLaurin's camera would not have done so. So basically, Tane, that's a lot like the preamble to the new 22. Yeah, I, I think this 2014 case, although it, it predated this uh, rule change by about four or five years, I think it was really the appellate court's pointing towards something that was becoming more and more important to them, which is we need to have these courtrooms be open and, and recognize that in the modern era, that sometimes involves re recording proceedings. Would that be a harbinger? A harbinger. That's a great way of putting it. So uh, I think undoubtedly that policy was part of the considerations going into the creation of Rule 22. The court in McLaurin also repeated the holding in, uh, in a famous case, R.W. Page, that Georgia law regarding the public aspect of hearings in criminal cases is more protective of the concept of open courtrooms than even the federal law, like we talked about a minute ago. So let's talk for a minute about what happens when a request is made by someone, anyone, to record the proceedings. A couple of concepts, the statute doesn't really take into consideration who the requester is, like what class of people they are. Right. So it's not important that someone be connected with a case or a traditional media or anything else. Those concerns really aren't a part of the consideration. There's also, secondly, I guess, there's no why. Why do you want to record that? Not your business. The question is, I want to record it. Even if I'm a crazy person, I want to record it. That's not something the judge should get involved with, right? That's right. Um, the general rule is uh, approval of the judge to broadcast, record, or photograph a proceeding, if granted, shall be granted without partiality or preference to any person, news agency, or type of electronic or photographic coverage. That's the general rule. So here's what's required of the requester, the person making the request. The person wanting to record must make a request to the court in writing. That request must be at least 24 hours in advance, but the court can consider one made in less time. Lord knows if I couldn't, I, I would never sign one because I always get them the day of. The, day, the morning of, absolutely. Third, I guess the court is then required to give notice to the parties. And this is big because I don't, I don't know that this always happens. The court is required to give notice to the parties of the receipt of the request. And then that, that notice to the parties doesn't have to be more than 24 hours out. Yeah, and realistically, as you said, Wade, that notice to the parties normally comes as we're about to start the proceedings. And I say, if I remember to say it... Uh, you know, WSBTV has asked to record the proceedings today, or John Smith uh, has made a request within 24 hours uh, or more than 24 hours to record these proceedings parties. Um, and that's important. Do you say, hey, do you have any objection? Uh, I do, yeah. If and I if, remember to ask it, I always ask, is there any objection to and, that? And do, if they say, yeah, I've got an objection, do you at least make them articulate a legitimate objection before you sort of say, tell everybody to turn stuff off? Or do you tell them to wait to turn it on until you hear the objection? How do you do that? I ask them to wait to turn it on until we've heard the the issue of the recording of the proceedings. And I think that's appropriate under the rule because it, it anticipates that you'll give the parties notice in advance and that they will have an opportunity to raise an objection to recording the proceedings, although it's not explicitly stated. So do you have to have a hearing? Well... Yes and no. A hearing is required if, A, the court intends to deny the request. So if you intend to deny the request um, after looking at it on its face, then you need to have a hearing. Or, B, if a party or a victim uh, in the case objects. Well, but now, a few minutes ago, we said the court has to notify the parties. They don't have to really invite them to 
to to object. So how would a how would a witness know? How would a victim know that we're even here? That's a really great point, Wade. Um, it's not addressed in the rule. But I suspect that this issue is one that can be raised at any time during the proceeding. So, for example, if a witness comes into the courtroom and sees a camera or recording device, then they could object at that time. While one would also hope that the DA would raise the issue on behalf of a victim, it seems that the victim could raise the issue also. And, and that's important because the question arises to me, at least, do I have to tell every single victim exactly. or witness who comes to the witness stand, hey, by the way, these proceedings are being recorded by X, Y, and Z? I, I just don't know. And, and I, don't, you know, I don't think the rule requires it, and I don't think the rule prohibits it. I think it would allow it or, or would allow you not to do that. It's really up to the court's discretion. So, Tane, let's talk about the factors that the rule requires. We've gotten some sort of objection, okay? Right. Or there, there's some problem, and we're really actually doing a hard dive on considering this. Yeah. Let's talk about what factors the court has to consider in order to decide whether to allow the recording that's been requested. Yeah, and and some of these are a little broad in general, so I think you need to think of them in terms of what specific situation they might cover. For example, A, the, the first one is the nature of the particular proceeding at issue. So if we're talking about a child molestation trial where victim witnesses may be testifying, that may be a little bit different than whether, you know, the party, one of the party's mama wants to record the entire proceeding about their divorce case um, so that they can, you know, put it on Facebook or whatever. Um, secondly, uh, the, the consent or objection of the party's witnesses or alleged, alleged victims whose testimony will be presented in the proceeding. So, um, again, you, you need to consider what they're objecting to and ask them why or how they're making that objection. Now, the, 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 the next point is whether that proposed recording is going to promote increased public access to the courts and openness of judicial proceedings. I don't know how you could ever answer that in the negative. I don't either. I mean, in fact, there's a case that we just cited to you that says it is. Um, so I don't. Yeah, that one. That one's sort of pro forma. The next is the impact upon the integrity and dignity of the court. Um, I, again, I don't know how you're going to get there if you think this is going to somehow um, interfere with the process. Now, I well, think that if, if you're going to start trying to run lights and you're going to start trying to hang uh, microphones and it's going to be a court TV kind of thing, that may be a different situation. Or, I, I mean, I'll just tell you, I, I can see a situation where um, we have a case that's being tried in a courtroom with limited capacity to put multiple TV cameras. And we're going to talk about how you mm -hmm. uh, some hints about how you can address some of that. But, but if it basically is going to turn the courtroom into just a media spectacle that's going to make a it sound difficult. stage, basically. Yeah, and, and make it difficult for the witnesses to be able to do what they need to do or the jurors to not pay attention to, uh, to what they're doing, I, I, I think those are all factors that can be uh, taken into consideration. And then there's also another factor that, that needs to be considered, which is uh, the impact upon the administration of the court. And that's really one of the ones that gives you a little bit of leeway mm -hmm. um, in terms of making your determination. Now, so they give some other factors that, that say basically the impact upon due process and the truth-finding function of the judicial proceeding, whether the proposed recording would contribute to the enhancement of or detract from the ends of justice. And, 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 and let me point out that, that what I think that one helps us with, because where you have proceedings potentially where a, a person has... Um, has indicated previously a propensity to use things um, 
to hurt the other, you know, the the other side that's in the proceeding. So if mm-hmm. you've got somebody who wants to record a, a vengeful ex-spouse or someone mm-hmm. who's liable to then put these very embarrassing details up on Facebook, you might have a mini hearing about that, and you might come to the conclusion that um, that's going to uh, not being the ends of justice. Yeah, detract from the ends of justice. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Well, there, no, what's the, the next factor? The, the special circumstances of the parties, witnesses, alleged victims, or other participants, such as the need to protect children and factors involving the safety of participants in the judicial proceeding. That, and then, I mean, that could be a lot. See, the, the, these right here give you some room if you've got a unique circumstance that is not the media would like to cover sentencing today on right. a drug case. That's right. And then, and then finally, sort of the any other factors affecting administration of justice or which the court may determine to be important of the circumstances of the case. Whew, that's through I, but then there's a, any other anything else you want to consider provision as well. Yeah, it's, it's, it's almost like they want us to take this seriously. Yeah. After taking all this into consideration, let's say you decide to deny that request, Tane, then what? Yeah. The rule requires that you make certain findings on the record. It doesn't say they have to be written, but it does say that they have to be on the record. And those those findings have to be pretty specific. First of all, you have to find a, sub, a substantial likelihood of harm. Number two, that the harm outweighs the benefit to the public. And number three, and this is this is an and, other lesser restrictions are unavailable or impractical. So don't forget that if you decide to deny it, not only do you need to make findings of fact, but you also need to com- make these conclusions and include them in your findings of fact. There's a, you got to come up with a pretty, I think, unique reason. Not even just good reason. I think it has to be a unique circumstance. Now, Tane, Agreed. when you do this, does the rule automatically have some of those basic provisions that you would hope that a rule would have in it? It does. It does. And it helps us in this respect. I mean, for example, uh, you can't record while the judge is out of the courtroom. That's prohibited. Um, and, and, and again, I, I'm going to recommend to you that you either have a standard Rule 22 order that includes these things on it or that you make this particular ruling from the bench and and emphasize it to the person who you're allowing to record but we have a sort of a standard form under rule 22 that has some of these things in it so can you share that and let me put it on the website yeah i think it's actually attached to rule 22 there's a there's a standard but form i didn't know if you had it. adapted it no you? we haven't but uh, but i'll um we'll make sure that yeah. that goes up on the website with this too at goodjudgepod.com so the first one is no recording while the judge is out of the courtroom. The next one is no recording whatsoever of jurors, and that means you know both their faces or their you know, Images, sta- statements yeah. they might make. Like, and I think that I think that includes certainly during voir dire and things like that. So, um, no. Rec- you kind of got mid air right there, didn't you? I know I did. Voir dire, voir dire. I did. Uh, the third one is no recording of confidential conversations. In other words, you can't sit right behind the defendant and record what he says to uh, his or her or what he or she says to their lawyer. Uh, fourth, no recording of bench conferences. I think that sort of goes without saying. You can't walk up to the front and stick your microphone up at the bench conference. But think about this. I mean, there are times where you may allow a news agency or anybody to put a microphone up on the bench, yeah. and you've got to be wary to cover that while bench conferences are going on. And, you know, the rule also sort of tells you who, you know, as a basic sort of a, a, a automatic every time rule, these rules, these recordings that you might make are not the official record. Right. That's what we said a minute ago. They, <laughs> these restrictions do not apply to the JQC 
or to the bar. Right. So for if those, obvious reasons. Yeah. If somebody wants to come into the courtroom and record how proceedings are going to see how an attorney or a judge is functioning, then they can do that without without any request and without prior notice. And that violations of all of these statutes are punishable by exclusion from the courtroom mm-hmm. and or contempt. That's exactly right. And think of, think of it in this way. It could be a criminal contempt. In other words, you've already warned the person not to record the proceedings and they record them anyway, then you can either exclude them from the courtroom and or cite them with contempt. So, Tane, let's talk for a minute about some of the ways that, that we have adapted this rule or I guess some of our practices. Where do, where do cameras go in your courtroom? So I'm really lucky. Um, when we constructed our new courthouse back in, it was finished in 2011, in every courtroom, they actually put a, uh, they put a, a, a media room behind each courtroom uh, out in the hallway. It's basically one of the conference areas out in the hallway to which the public has access. And that media room actually has a little window into the courtroom from which uh, cameras can be placed behind the window and record things that are ongoing in the courtroom. And basically, it's, it's fantastic because it's not obtrusive. They're not in the courtroom per se. And it's at an angle where they can't really <laughs> record the jurors at all, the way that the jurors come in and out, and um, it's completely unobtrusive. I mean, people don't even realize that they're there. As the judge, you can always control things like placement of the cameras and any recording devices, if there's any lighting or sound changes to the room, anything that might tend to disrupt the proceedings. You're going to have the ability to do that whether you grant the Rule 22 or not, you can, you can still control those sorts of things. Yeah, it's like back in the era before digital cameras when cameras each made noises every time a photo was taken. Back in those days, you could tell them to use a silent camera. Well, here, for example, you can say you can't you can't use light extra lighting. You can't mm-hmm. use, you know, those kinds of things that would detract from the proceeding. So let's recap. You ready, Tane? Let's do First, Rule 22 controls all aspects of a utilization of, I guess, of a device in a courtroom. Yeah, that's right. And second, recording by self-represented parties or their counsel is permitted by simply putting the court and the other parties on notice. Third, recording in the courtroom is considered an extension of the open courtroom concept that we hold near and dear under Georgia law. That's right. And fourth, requests should be given due consideration, and if denied, they require findings of fact and the reasons to be placed on the record. Well, folks, as always, we hope that this has been helpful in your daily practice as a judge or lawyer or even maybe, I guess, a member of the media. If you'd like more information, don't forget to check out our website at goodjudgepod.com. That's right. And also send us any suggestions or comments about the podcast at our email address at goodjudgepod at gmail.com. So be sure and follow the Good Judgment podcast on your favorite platform and like us just for fun. So I'm Wade Padgett. And I'm Tane Kell. Insert something funny. Folks, that's all we have for another exciting and enthralling topic here on the Good Judgment Podcast. Thank you for listening to the Good Judgment Podcast. This project was the brainchild of Mr. Doug Ashworth, the executive director of ICJE. Thanks and appreciation to the entire University of Georgia College of Law for assisting in our recording. Thanks to Mr. Stephen Turner and his company, Turner Up Media, who helped edit out some of our stupidity and awkwardness. But nobody can get it all. Tane and I are eternally grateful to the Council of Superior Court Judges who allow us to lead new judge orientation for the Superior Court Judges
across Georgia. Thanks to our NJO graduates who've been willing to help with this podcast series. You know that these are our opinions, and they do not reflect the opinions of ICJE, CSCJ, the University of Georgia College of Law, or anybody else for that matter. You can contact us at goodjudgepod at gmail.com for any praise, but please contact someone else with any complaints. But seriously, we would love to have your feedback, both good and bad. Send any comments to goodjudgepod at gmail.com. You've been doing a great job doing that. We really appreciate the help. You can also visit our website at goodjudgepod.com for outlines and more details about our podcast. Once again, I'm Wade Padgett. And I'm Tane Kell. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to the Good Judge Men Podcast.